Hey folks, uh, GPS 220 um, coming at you from my office actually right now. No, um, this is being recorded on Sunday. You should be able to view it uh, or um, upload it today. Um, remember, you can view or up uh, view or listen one of two ways, one of three ways actually. You can listen to it as a podcast that's available on Anchor and available on Spotify. The, uh, the other way to do it is to watch the video, which you're doing right now. Um, just as a reminder, we went through um, part of lecture one on, uh, I guess it was last Wednesday, I suppose. Uh, and we're going to complete that today and then also um, look at some things for the, uh, the next lecture when we look at the uh, modern state. So we'll, st we'll do a little bit of, of that. Just a reminder, uh, you should be working on the Getting to Know You assignment. That's due by 5 p.m. on Sunday. I'm recording this at noon Sunday, so if you listen to it before then, then you should be reminded to, to complete that assignment. Okay, what have we accomplished so far? Let's look at that. Uh, so far, what we've done is try to introduce um, comparative politics. And one of the ways we introduce comparative politics is look at three different definitions. Uh, the other way we introduce comparative politics is to talk about food, which I love to talk about. And the third way we introduce comparative politics is to look at this definition about uh, uh, political phenomena, generalized understandings, uh, big questions, and so on and so forth. Uh, what I'd like to do today is talk about the different ways to do comparative politics and then, again, introduce us to the state. Just as a reminder, let me close this out just so you can have a look at it again. The files section of, of our uh, GPS 220 Canvas page has all these lecture outlines. And then just as a reminder, frequently check the assignment section, the getting to know you assignment right there. And that is due uh, this afternoon. All right. So how do we do comparative politics? One of the ways to think about comparative politics or really any political question is to divide it into two parts, uh, to think about it as either an empirical question or as a normative question. One of the things that most political science uh, courses try to do is give you empirical information. What we mean by empirical information is data, facts, okay? So when we look at empirical questions or empirical approaches to political science, to comparative politics, we're looking at facts or data to help you understand or make decisions. On the other hand, we have normative approaches that we can use. A normative approach is an ought statement, a should statement, a statement which talks about or discusses what should be done in a given scenario. If this is your first time taking a political science class, one of the things that um, sometimes is assumed about politics is that, oh, I bet you have some really good debates in that class. And of course, sometimes we have debates. I would call them more discussions than in conversations than debates. But debates assume kind of normative approaches. This is what we ought to do. This is what should happen, so on and so forth. Uh, what I would argue is to try to, to, to do both, right? In order to have good debates, if we're going to use that word, in order to have normative approaches, we have to have an understanding of the data, an understanding of empirical um, observational stuff use a very non-scientific term. So if I want to make sense of voting and who to vote for, 
I'm, I might want to take a look at what the data tells me and, and have an understanding of what, what data directs me or where data leads me. If you're trying to figure out, you know, is this class an, an empirical class or a normative class, Dr. Ellis? It's a little bit of both. But a lot of what this class is, is as an introduction to politics, is, is normative. Uh, sorry, normative. Is empirical in its approach. And it's empirical in its approach because the assumption is it's introductory class. You need to have the data uh, and facts in order to, to accomplish what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And so in building on that empirical stuff, you can do some of the normative things that you'd like to do. And that may include, right, these ought questions, these should questions, and so on. So just to start today's lesson, um, we're looking at how you do comparative politics. One of the ways you do it is by building a lot of data, empirical. Another way to do it is to then solve problems, ought, should types of questions. That's what we get at when we're looking at normative. So an empirical statement says the president is elected by the Electoral College. That's an empirical statement. The president is elected vis-a-vis -vis the Electoral College. A normative statement is the Electoral College is undemocratic and therefore should be abolished. All right. It's, it's stating something that is a should statement in its uh, departure. Okay. Secondly, another way we can do comparative politics is to do case studies or the comparative method. We're already, you already know kind of what the comparative method is because we talked about it last time. You're using comparison to make sense of the world. So-and-so is the worst president we've ever had compared to whom? All right. You're the worst boyfriend or girlfriend I've ever had compared to whom? That's the comparative method. It's kind of easy to understand. But really to do politics, we have to have a combination of what we call case studies and the comparative method. Uh, next time when we uh, get together, I'm going to show you a map of a country called Moldova. We're going to look at Moldova as a case study uh, in order for you to make sense of what a state is. Okay, but we're not going to do that right now, but we'll, we'll do that at some point. Here's an analogy which may be useful or may not be. A case study tries not to miss the trees for the forest. A case study tries not to miss the trees for the forest. In other words, if we think about a forest, what makes a forest a forest is all these individual trees, bushes, shrubbery, whatever it is, whatever a forest looks like to you. When we're doing the case study, we're trying to get specific or important details to make sense of a particular or a given uh, item, whatever it is that we're trying to study. So if I'm trying to study uh, communist societies, I'm going to look at cases where communism exists. Now, in the comparative method, we're trying not to miss the forest for the trees. In other words, we don't want to lose sight of the big picture by focusing in on something that's a bit too narrow. In political science, in all political science courses, we are constantly sort of analyzing specific details but trying to have those specific details make sense in a broader picture. So back to our example of pizza that we used from our first uh, lecture. Pizza as a detail, right? Uh, a slice of pepperoni pizza, for example, is interesting. We, If we've never had pizza for the first time, we look at it, we taste, we're like, oh, this is kind of interesting. This is kind of unique. But removed from understanding of what food is, what food does, 
or what pizza is or what pizza does, it doesn't make any sense on its own, right? It's just an individual thing. In order to understand food, we have to take a bigger picture. What is it that food does? Well, it nourishes us. Uh, it allows us to, to work. Um, it makes us feel good. It is something that embodies family or commitments to one another. But if we do that too broadly, then we'll miss the significance of individual cuisine. All right. Why did Taco Tuesday become Taco Tuesday? That's a silly example. But, but what is it about pizza that so resonates with the, the American family? What is it about tacos that have made it ubiquitous? In other words, one of the most prominent foods that you can have in the United States, even though it's not originally from the United States. Why is that the case? So the details are significant. What is pizza? What is a taco? But in comparison, we get a broader or a bigger picture. All right. All right. Let's not use food, Dr. Ellis. Let's use an actual political example. Back to our issue of a communist state. I study the country of Estonia. It's a very tiny country, 1.3 million people located on the Baltic Sea. Um, I think it's interesting, but I don't expect all of my students in political science, I don't expect my colleagues at Wingate to, to have a passion for Estonia that I have for Estonia. But nevertheless, it's important to know about. It's an important tree in that forest. What makes Estonia relevant, though, is when I can talk about Estonia in comparison to other places. When I can then begin to see that forest, that big picture, instead of that very narrow or small detail. So what is it about Estonia that can have any relevance for an American? Well, maybe one way they could have a relevance is that they have a very unique way that they go about and do voting. Uh, they vote online in Estonia. Uh, that's interesting. That's something that we can compare to. We, we definitely don't do that in the United States. Is it safe? Is it not safe? then we can use that comparison from that very small detail to make sense of a bigger picture. So I hope that makes sense. If not, drop me a line, a text, whatever it is that, may, that you may need to do, and I'll, I'll uh, look at it in further detail. Thirdly, the scientific method. Understanding the difference between the hard sciences, what we call the hard sciences, and what we call the social sciences. Um, the scientific method is... Uh, used in various um, disciplines, including what we call the social sciences, where political science kind of hangs out with psychology and economics and sociology. But we don't oftentimes talk about political science as a science, right? When you think about science, think about it in high school, science was a subject that you took. Um, botany is a science. Chemistry is a science. Biology is a science. Zoology is a science. We don't think about political science as a science. So wh why do we have that term? Why do we even talk about the social sciences? Those of you that, that take science courses, you know political science is not like chemistry. We, we use that terminology because what we have in common, what political science has in common with chemistry, is the use of the scientific method. The hypothesis, the experiment, the collection of, of data, the observation of that data, the conclusion. I forgot to talk about the question itself, right, to start that. We do those same things in political science. The difference is um, we are not very good at two pieces of that in the social sciences. In the social sciences, it's very hard for us to replicate. 
and to control, which you can do very well in the hard sciences. What do I mean by that? What does it mean to replicate and control? To replicate an experiment means that you can perform that experiment over and over and over again and get pretty much similar results. So one of the ways we know how medicine works is because medicines go through this thing called trials. And at the end of this trial, uh, or these trials, I think there are three stages of trials, we have a pretty good idea or understanding of what this medicine is supposed to do. Now, it doesn't work the same in everyone. Not every vaccine works in everyone the same way. Not every person that takes ibuprofen does it exactly work the same way and so on. We know to a great deal of certainty that every single time we make this particular drug, it has this particular effect. All right? With a very high rate of certainty. That's what's known as replication. One of the ways that we can do replications was because in the hard sciences, things like chemistry, biology, zoology, anatomy, and so on, we can control our environment. We can you know, measure the amount of humidity. We can set the temperature a certain way. We can block out the sun. We can mix exactly the, the right amount of chemicals at the right time in order to uh, get that experiment. Controlling the environment in which you do experimentation is how we can replicate. And that's basically what chemists do all the time and what they do in biology and what they do in botany and zoology all the time. In fact, when you do your lab experiments, the, the implication of that is that you are in a setting or an environment that if you do this particular experiment, it will produce similar results over and over again. The social sciences have a very, very hard time with that. The social sciences are not particularly good at controlling and replicating an environment because we're dealing with people and, and we're not talking about people on an operating table. We're not talking about, you know, the interaction of a medicine on someone's uh, liver organ. We're talking about dealing with people's brains, with people's memories, with uh, people's histories. The social sciences uses, uses uh, the scientific method. It's just that it's very hard to control our environment because people are, are, are very different. Their memories and their histories are very different. And therefore, if it's hard to control, it's hard to replicate. So we have a pretty good understanding of, of, of why people vote for who they vote for, but not with near the certainty that we have with taking a certain medicine and what it can do to someone. Okay. So we have an understanding when we do polling right now, there's lots of political polls out because of, you know, the 2020 is an election year. We have a pretty good understanding of how polling works, but the methodology, even though it's scientific in nature, right, we can't fully control and replicate the way we wish. And so therefore there's always a, a, a kind of a, a pretty good margin of error uh, that helps us to understand or make sense. Now, at the end of the day, polling's pretty good but it's not perfect, right? It's imperfect in a way that perhaps taking a certain medicine might not be. I'm going to take a quick pause right here. Um, one of the things that I discovered about the uh, podcast is if I record more than 30 minutes um, straight, it will cut off. So I'm going to take a quick pause here. Let's pause this right here. And I'm going to return in just a moment.
back. So I want to get into this last part of this first lecture, really the second part of um, this outline. And that is how do we begin to explain political behavior? So just as a just as a repeat, how we do compare to politics, we, we can study it empirically or normatively. We can look at observation or we can look at kind of should or ought questions. Secondly, case study or comparative method. We need to do both, right? Um, case study gives us really important details. The comparative method gives us the really broad strokes. But in doing the case study, we don't want to miss the, the big picture. In doing the comparative method, we don't want to lose the important details. Political science is a science in the sense that it uses the scientific method to get at um, political questions. The difference is, is we do not have the capacity to control and replicate uh, the way they do in the hard sciences. And so therefore, we have to be cautious in how we um, go about talking about the method. So, you know, um, political polling is an inexact science, but it's a science nonetheless because they use a method uh, or an approach in order to get at the uh, the answers to the questions that they're asking. All right. Last part of this lecture. What explains then political behavior? What you have here are three different kind of approaches um, to, politi to political behavior, the rational choice approach, the cultural approach, and the institutional approach. And I'm going to just briefly kind of talk about how these approaches can help us to explain how people see politics or approach politics. Um, when we have in-person class, this is a kind of fun little uh, kind of game that I do with students, you know, kind of talking about or talking them through these three things. And it's always uh, it's always fun to do in class, a little harder to do online. But nevertheless, we'll we'll uh, we'll walk you through this. All right. What explains political behavior? Uh, there's one major approach that's that's still very commonly used in the United States, well, throughout the world, really, and that's called rational choice theory. Um, how do we explain how someone behaves? And, and one of the most common explanations is that people behave the way they do because they're individuals that have self-interest and reason. Uh, they vote the way they vote because it's good for them. They make the choices they make because it's good for them. So if we think about, you know, who you're going to vote for in the 2020 election, just, you know, Imagine this scenario. Um, you want to vote for the person that will help your pocketbook the best. In other words, that will be good for your industry, whatever your industry is. So that's a rational choice approach, because what you're saying is, is I care about my self-interest and my self-interest is that I have a job. Okay. Now, in any time I talk about this in class, students look at this approach and say, yeah, well, of course, we're all self-interested. That's the way we make decisions, Dr. Ellis. And it actually turns out that it's a little more complicated than that, because when we look at other kind of approaches, we see how the rational choice approach gets complicated a bit. It doesn't mean it's wrong or that people still don't find the approach the most compelling, but there are other ways in which we can approach political problems. Okay. Second is the cultural theory. The cultural theory says that many of our choices are driven by the communities in which we grew up in, by our cultural values, by things like religion by things like our neighbors, uh, by things like social pressures, and so on. So let's imagine a scenario where um, we grew up very religious. Growing up very religious in a small community might greatly impact um, who and how we vote, all right, um, in ways that are um, surprising and in ways that are probably unsurprising. 
Uh, one of the examples I always use in class when we think about kind of voting and how it works is the impact of kind of different cultural attributes um, and different notions of identity and how different notions of identity can impact our voting. So one of the examples I sometimes use is I'll say, okay, imagine the scenario. We have a male, we have uh, uh, a Southerner. So we have a male Southerner who's very religious. They're in their 50s. A male Southerner, very religious, in their 50s. Um, working class. And then I'll say something like, who do you think this person might likely vote for? We think they're going to vote for Donald Trump or you think they're going to vote for Joe Biden. I'd say that. And then students think, and most students raise their hands and say, well, they're going to vote for Trump, obviously. And like, I say, okay, why? It's like, well, you know, they're Southerner, they're, they're religious, they're uh, you know, a small town, like that's Trump's base. And it's like, okay, but I didn't tell you their race. And so the really smart students say, you know, kind of set back and like, well, I don't have enough information yet. And, and the reason I'm using this example is because, one, it's, it's a bit of a social scientific one. Because we know how things like religion and where we live and whether we're male or female and our race, how those things can play into who we're going to vote for. And so we actually do have some interesting kind of social scientific um, uh, experiments we can do looking at how those things impact voter outcome. In other words, who someone's going to vote for. But in this case, you know, we have kind of competing identities which might impact the outcome of our vote. So when you assumed, as many students do, when you assumed that this person I was describing was white, it was easy to say, well, they're going to vote for Trump because that's the heart of Trump's base. When I said that they were black, then you thought, well, ooh, that's a little bit trickier because we know African-Americans tend to vote Democratic. OK, um, now, again, th that's the trend, right? We're dealing here in kind of a scientific approach, which is not foolproof, um, which is just giving us trends more than particular outcomes. But the reason I mentioned this is because when we look at what explains political behavior, and I say the first one, self-interest matters. And you say, of course it matters because we're going to do something in our self-interest. And I say, well, think about this scenario where we include race and religion and, and where you grew up and all that kind of stuff in the, in the proceedings. And then you say, well, it's a little more complicated. Okay. So what explains political behavior? Self-interest? Maybe. What about culture? Maybe also. The last piece is institutional theory. This is where institutions affect our behavior. Laws, um, organizations can impact uh, the decisions that we make. So uh, um, things like whether you're a felon or not can impact whether you vote. Things like the fact that voting falls on a workday can impact your vote. If you live in a state that, that has early voting can impact your vote. If you live in a state where they... Um, where they have mail-in voting um, that can impact your... Now, all states have some form of absentee voting, um, but some states, uh, you know, kind of roll out the red carpet to allow you to do this, not other states, and other states do not. So um, when it's all said and done, what I'm trying to articulate here is that our political behavior... Uh, and, and the way we do comparative politics is very much impacted by different approaches or different methods that we can pursue, whether we pursue empirical or normative questions, whether we pursue case studies or the comparative method, whether we pursue uh, kind of the social sciences in, in, the, in the sense that we're trying to control and replicate and how, how good can we do with that. 
or um, how we approach political behavior in these different categories or scenarios, whether it's self-interest based with rational choice, cultural based with, based with cultural theory, and institutional based um, with the institutional theory and so on. All right. Still a little bit more I want to cover today. So we're going to close out of this outline. I want to go to this outline here. So if you're listening on the podcast, what we've just done is we've changed out from the first outline to the outline called the modern state. Again, these lecture outlines are, are going to be there um, as you watch the uh, as you watch the uh, lectures or listen to the lectures. Okay, so what we have now is a definition of politics or some definitions of politics. We have something called comparative politics, and we have some different approaches. What we're going to do now over the next few days or few weeks is look at different concepts related to politics. Different concepts. The first uh, big concept that we're going to look at is the state. Okay. Um, and we're going to talk briefly about that. But, but before we get there, I want to look at three other concepts just to get our headspace right. The words state, regime, government, nation. These are words that are, that are very common uh, to political scientists, maybe even common to you. You know what these words kind of mean. But maybe not so common to, uh, or, or sorry, maybe not so significant that people don't use them interchangeably. What I want to get across for you uh, today, very briefly, is that these are four concepts that are distinct, that are very distinct in how uh, they are used as political scientists. So the state we'll put to the side for right now, because we're going to come back to that later. But the regime, the government, the nation, and the state are four distinct concepts that really help us to understand politics. So the regime is the first one that I want to discuss. Three word definition. Regime is the system of laws. The regime is basically the approach um, we take to understanding the legal system of any particular uh, country. So a type of regime is like a democratic regime. A type of regime is like an authoritarian regime a theocratic regime, a monarchy. All of these are regime types because there's a certain system of laws that prevails. In a democracy, what prevails is a democratic system of laws. In a theocracy, what prevails is a religious system of laws. Next lecture, or two lectures from now, we'll get into more detail about what um, the differences between, let's say, a democratic authoritarian and a totalitarian system of law is, or regime is. Government. Here's another word that we use around, uh, we throw around kind of willy-nilly. But the government are the people in power at any given moment. That's our little eight-word definition that I like to use. The people in power at any given moment. So if our regime is democratic and the government are the people in power at any given moment, then the government right now is Donald Trump at the federal level. The government right now is Roy Cooper at the state of North Carolina level. The mayor... Uh, right now is the government at the local level. But the regime is the regime. You know, if we look at American history, there's been basically one regime. Because basically what was laid out in the Constitution, at least the first 10 amendments, are still basically what we abide by. Now we've added on that. And we've changed things, right? I mean, 
when the country was founded, there was slavery. And when the country was founded, there was gender discrimination and so on. But basically, the, the legal system that kind of founded the country is still basically the same one used today. We've had 45 different governments because we've had 45 different presidents. Okay. Uh, we've actually had 44 different presidents, but one served non-consecutively. So neither here nor there. The point is, is that we sometimes use these words, country, regime, government, interchangeably when they mean distinct things. The regime is a system of laws that undergirds everything. It's the foundation for everything. The government are the people empowered in any given moment. Anytime there's an election, we get to we get to choose if the government in power stays in power or if the government in power must leave. All right. That's what essentially voting does in a democratic government in a democratic regime. Excuse me. Lastly, the nation, the people of the place, the nation is us. The nation is the culture. The nation is the language. The nation is the sports and the, the, the entertainment and the Hollywood. That's the nation. The nation are all the things that impact us in kind of our everyday understanding of who we are. So if we call ourselves Americans, that has a legal definition, right? We can look on a passport and see that this tells us we are Americans. On the other hand, it very much has a cultural piece as well. Most Americans will need to learn English in order to survive in this country. All right. Even though English isn't the official language, English is very much the language of business. It's the language of instruction for this course, for example. All right. In order to be a proper American, you probably need to have an understanding of our holidays, what July 4th means, what Thanksgiving means, what Labor Day means. All right. In order to be uh, a proper American, you might need to have an understanding of sports. Right. You may you might hate baseball, but you probably understand what three strikes and you're out means. All right. You probably have an understanding of that. If you're not an American. Then the place you grew up probably has its own kind of national culture, its own flags, its own entertainment industry, its own sports culture, which impacts who you are and how you see yourself. OK. Well, what I want to do now, I think, is stop right here uh, for today. And we'll pick up uh, talking about the state. So we're a little behind because we're not properly in class. It doesn't really matter that much. I can kind of catch up anytime I need to. Uh, but we're going to stop here. We're going to talk about the modern state on, uh, on I guess, Wednesday. Um, so be prepared for that. But for now, uh, we've concluded lecture one. We've kind of started, uh, or we've, sorry, we've, we've concluded lecture outline one. We've started lecture outline two. And I will talk to you later.